0: Hello and welcome. You're listening to the Diversity Matters Show, the podcast where every voice is welcome and every story is celebrated. Join Mike and his guest as they deep dive into the heart of inclusion, equity and diversity. They explore where the real change is happening and open up honest dialogue that touches on various DE and I subjects from inspiring conversations to challenging ones with the hope of sparking thought-provoking discussions. Now, here's your host, Mike Seeley.
1: Hello, and welcome to the Diversity Matters podcast show. My guest this week is Georgina Kennedy, a sales account executive at Cognosist, a company that was created with the single idea in mind to ensure neurodiversity is embraced every day. Georgie is an openly gay woman diagnosed with ADHD and dyslexia. She has been working in cells for over 13 years, but four years ago she actively moved into the neurodiversity space after realising that her neurodiverse differences were being interpreted as a lack of intelligence and ability. At Cognisys, she is on a mission, along with her colleagues and the wider neurodiversity community, to drive change. This includes driving awareness by educating and sharing lived experiences, being an ally, and providing individuals, institutions, and organisations with the resources and tools to enable all to thrive. Georgie, a warm welcome to Diversity Matters.
2: Thank you so much. That was the most fabulous introduction ever, so thank you,
1: Mike. (laughs) No worries. Now, (laughs) just through that introduction, um, you clearly intersect across several of the protected characteristics as outlined. Mm -hmm in the Equality Act of 2010. Can you start by just sharing some of your experiences growing up as a child and teenager?
2: Yeah, of course. So I think for me as an individual growing up, I was very unaware of my behaviours and how I was interacting with the world. And it's only when people pointed out to me that I was acting potentially differently is when I actually realised a little bit later on in life. But I found school incredibly challenging. So I'd always be chit-chatting, walking around the classroom. My reading ability, I wasn't able to read until a little bit later um, compared to my, the people in my um, my school. Um, and it's funny, actually, because my mum came into school and actually was doing reading with us. And she noticed at that point, which is fabulous, to be honest, because that was fed back, obviously, when I had my ADHD assessment. But I guess maybe the more challenging piece was when I used to cheat in mathematics in primary school I vividly remember this so the ways that I managed being a neurodiverse or neurospicy, as I say individual and not actually realizing was essentially by cheating the system so one of the key indicators that I was having challenges is when I did my stats I did I think I got level threes and everything which meant I moved into um, secondary school in very low sets
3: mm-hmm.
2: and what I was realizing I, was, I just wasn't learning I wasn't taking the information and retaining it in my brain in the way that other people were doing. So I guess for me, it was incredibly, when I got the SATs um, kind of marked, my parents were incredibly shocked because they always thought I'd been doing well in school, mm. apart from being a bit noisy, a bit chatty, et cetera, um, and a bit disruptive. So this was a massive shocker to them. So they took it on themselves to look into this and understand why. And actually, what they decided to do is to actually reteach my syllabuses to me outside of school, after school, to enable me to absorb and learn in a way that I could work and operate.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: So, essentially, my parents became my scaffolding. That's why in the neurodiversity world scaffolding is, is well known. Right. You will see most successful uh, individuals who are neurospicy have scaffolding, which is normally their parents. So, that was incredible for me, but also incredibly frustrating.
1: Mm. Whilst mm-hmm. you were at school, did they provide any support? Were they actually aware, apart from you being no. a little bit naughty, were they aware of you and provide yeah. any support at all?
2: No. So, in, relate, in relation to, do you know, that's just to make you aware, you'll see throughout this conversation, I think it's one of the key things to add in. And it's a stop phrase I use in relation to and in regards to all the time. It's a way of me giving myself time to think. Mm-hmm. So, that's a kind of a way of um, coping, just to make you aware. In relation to school, no, because my mum wrote my essays for me. So English was covered. I would kind of t- talk to her about what was, what I was going to be writing and she would put it down in words for me because I found it impossible to put everything into my head, from my head into, into paper. My parents were reteaching me the syllabuses, so I was able to learn. So I started off in sets threes and fours, but actually by the end, I was in sets ones and twos because of the work they had done with me. Okay. Mm-hmm so it wasn't identified it was just the behavior which is really challenging that was the biggest a- aspect for me walking out, walking out of class always going to the toilets um you know i'd often get bites where they'll say it's frustrated so that's the areas of more challenge but mm. it's incredible when you do get the right you're taught in the right way you yeah. can actually really thrive
1: okay great uh, and also in terms of Making friends at school—was it easy to make friends, mm-hmm. or did you find that difficult? I
2: had lots of friends, and I still have lots of friends now. But amazingly, I had lots of enemies as well. And mm. I, it was always the girls in the year above me—always mm. nasty. And I—I I was a little bit, bit chubbier when I was younger, and I used to get picked on for being a bit bigger. Mm-hmm. And I always found that a challenge. And I think my impulsive behaviour and um, ability to switch mood-wise as well as kind of like hormonal change, changes, et cetera. That's what you experience, obviously, and as you're growing up during secondary school. You know, I was quite impulsively and did have the fights as mentioned, but I also had a stable core friendship group as well. And that's transitioned into college. So yeah. when I was at college, I've got a core group of friends. There's five girls, there's five of us. And I think as I, I wrote in my article recently, it was one of those friends that I actually turned around and said, George, you're actually gay. And I was like... <laughs> oh, that she had to, I can not identify myself. I wasn't aware of myself and that I was. Mm -hmm. And it took her to tell me. And I've still got this, there's still that five of us now. And they're the most incredible group of friends who have driven me and supported me through the whole of my transitions in life, whether that be from coming out as gay to having challenges around my ADHD, Mm. my divorce and just life in general. Um, So, yeah.
1: So tell me, what was it that your friend saw in you that, said that you were gay and once she actually told you that that was it like a light bulb that came on for you did you oh acknowledge God. it immediately or you know how, how did you take it that
2: all clicked in, right all clicked into place. said, like, ah that's what it is that is what it is because for so long i had boyfriends and i was kind of um you know I think I was going off and snogging girls in clubs <laughs> behind pillars and thinking they couldn't see and you know obsessing them. And I think I was about you know sixteen, seventeen at the time. And my brother's gay, mm-hmm. and so I used to go gay clubbing with him, and it was very normal. And yeah, just it felt, I just, yeah, just felt very normal to me, and I didn't, I didn't even think about it. Did it? What was it they saw in me? It was probably my behaviors and what I was doing. So. You know, they knew exactly what I was up to. It would be the way I was talking about people. So I remember it was art class, and I actually fancied someone at the time who was also in art class, and obviously I'd openly talk about it. My friend's like, oh, you know, that's what it is. But this is what I'm saying to you, Mike, is that even when I talk about things like psychometric tests, et cetera, I've always had to ask somebody else if I'm like that. Mm-hmm. And I think that's part of my neurodivergence is that I just yeah. – there's aspects of me that I just don't see and I don't understand I'm not aware of. Yeah but there's other things I'm hyper aware of, right? which is, it's bizarre. I hope that answers that question.
1: Yeah, it does. And so Mm. did you eventually go and get assessed for ADHD and dyslexia? And if you did, when did that take place?
2: In relation to me as an individual, I very much took the creative curve in life. So academia actually did did very well in, in GCSEs thanks to my parents. And then I moved into college and was doing art. And then I moved into university. And I, again, I studied fine art sculpture. And aspects of that degree, I was away from my family. I didn't have my scaffolding. Um, I didn't have my mum to write my essays. And that's where I was crippled. Because the making and the creative aspect of my degree was, I was, you know, absolutely flying. I was, I was hitting, you know, reasonable marks, good marks. But, but the, the kind of admin you the know, dissertation side, I was literally crumbling. Mm-hmm. So I got diagnosed then um, with dyslexia, okay? And that's the easiest one um, to get diagnosed for. I guess it's most commonly known. It was funded by the university. I got all the equipment I needed. It was incredible. Not that assistive technology-wise, I did use some of them, but the main key thing to me was having somebody to go to a tutor to write yeah. the dissertation with, okay? But I went to the doctors because they said to me, George, you do not sit still long enough to learn, so this is my ADHD, kind of a hyperactivity side. I've got, Unless I'm hyper-focusing and I'm really, really interested in something, I won't. So I went to the, the GP and I was 19 at the time. And I said, you know, I've been told I think the ADHD by a psychologist. Could I get an assessment? The doctor, the GP just turned around and I said, doesn't exist in adults. Uh, and laughed me back out again. So I never got assessed at the time. And Actually, what I've re- realized over the years, and I got diagnosed later on in life at 35, is that the ADHD is, has the biggest impact in my life. Mm-hmm. Definitely, emotional dysregulation, um, inability to kind of really concentrate. If I'm if I'm not interested in something at work, I won't sit and learn, which can impact the aspects yeah. of my job. So that's been the biggest challenge actually. But yeah. luckily, got diagnosed by lexic at 35. Thank God. Yeah
1: interestingly you just mentioned the comment from the doctor that was basically saying it doesn't mm. exist in adults so were they trying to say that children actually grow out of this as they get older yes
2: yes well the think the key thing was you know like anything in life most things have been uh, research around men and boys etc so one of the key things was women didn't have adhd it didn't exist in women mm. and the other thing is that children outgrew it so that's what he obviously believed and you know, for anyone who's in a, a debilitating situation, <laughs> they'll know if anyone's in a hyper um hyper ADHD burnout, life can become incredibly chaotic.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And it's like even the simple things in life, like kind of putting your washing away, um, doing the dishwasher, or even just being able to get up and shower in the morning. When you're in ADHD kind of hyper you like, you just can't do any of it. Mm-hmm. And your brain becomes an absolute scramble. So those aspects of my university course where I felt like that. And I really needed support and help, but obviously it wasn't there. So it's only in the last kind of two or three years, I've really started to understand who I am as a person and a human being. And that's amazing.
1: And do you have your own set of like coping mechanisms? You know, if you know, for example, you're you're getting agitated, how do you then either calm yourself down and relax or think about something Mm -hmm. else that will just kind of ease the tension for you what, what do you do
2: tension so we call this um, i call this self-parenting <laughs> and i've got a friend that <laughs> recently said they're not self-parenting at the moment which i'm not actually at the moment i need to be so self-parenting for me is breath work breath work is the most incredible thing that's changed my life and my energy so one of the key things mike is that the, one of the reasons i got my adhd diagnosis is because my marriage was breaking down
3: Mm-hmm.
2: and my my ex-wife said to me at the time if you don't get a diagnosis now get medication i'm going to leave you okay so i was in that cycle at that time so i was very negative very anxious um, incredibly unhappy and the biggest game changer is exercise so mm-hmm. going to the gym regular exercise being part of community sports so i play football every mm-hmm. saturday okay it's my routine so I think there's I think there's some autistic traits in there as well with me because I love routine. I love know what's coming yeah. up and I love to plan. <laughs> so that every Saturday keeps me absolutely sane. But also you meet a variety of women, often who are gay as well. Also, you know, it opens you up to the kind of the different generations. So it's kind of multi-generational, which is it's fantastic. Yeah. But it's just having that community around you. Um, so gymming, football. Keeps me sane. Breath work. Mm. Breath work changes the energy from within your core. And it it made me from a very negative person into an incredibly positive person who just woke up every day and was super excited by life. And the way that I did breath work, so a lot of ADHD women say to me, I can't sit down long enough to to do it. I take an antihistamine at night to sleep because I'm an insomniac. Mm -hmm. In the morning, I'm (laughs) drowsy. So I do it in the morning when I'm just, just after having a coffee. Okay, mm-hmm. and but also the biggest game change as well is the noise cancelling headphones. Yeah, so I listen to music all the time. One of the key things about ADHD is that your dopamine levels are lower,
3: mm. so
2: you're constantly looking for the dopamine hit. Whether that's scrolling through the internet, my key thing is music. Music keeps me on a level. I keep dancing. It keeps my energy high. So that's that's um, just that's four coping mechanisms just yeah. there. But diet is another one. So diet. diet's really imperative. Mm-hmm. Yeah, looking at your diet and what you're eating. Um, much more of I've had much more of a raw diet, less sugar, a lot more greens and protein. Okay. Mm-hmm. And what's the other one? I've got one other one that I was gonna actually it'll come back. Let me think about it. That's another okay. thing. So ADHD, something pops into your brain, it'll pop straight out again. So um yeah, yeah it'll come back to me. Oh, so I'll let you know.
1: Very interesting, particularly in terms of the of the diet and also the breathing. Mm-hmm exercises is that when you say breathing is that breathing exercises or is that medi- meditation yeah
2: so i use breath pod and um breath pod is it's a guy that's radio one dj and he does it and he, he talks you through the processes so that initially it's breathe breath work mm-hmm. manifestation and meditation all combined in one oh. 20 minute session every morning and it just gets you set up for the day but it also gets you appreciating what you love in life and keeping you focused on the really positive things. But it's the breath work that just, yeah, it does change your energy. So, but I Mike, I just remembered the other thing.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: So one of the key things in relation to ADHD women, okay, is the menstrual cycle.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: During a menstrual cycle, when your estrogen levels are higher and lower, if your estrogen is lower, your dopamine levels are lower. So that's about managing that as well. So that's another thing yeah. I take menstrual cycle tablets, which has right. massively helped as well. Just to
1: keep me more balanced. Great stuff. Now earlier on I'd mentioned that you have been in sales for a number of years. Mm-hmm. So before I get on to cognizance, just talk a little bit about the sales roles that you've had, how you've actually because co- sales itself can be a high pressure environment, right? Mm-hmm. So how how have you been able to be successful in a in a sales role?
2: I moved into sales because um, transitioning from university doing fine art sculpture uh, into the corporate environment. Like, what am I going to do? What are my skills that are transferable? And one of the key things is I love to connect with human beings. And sales is all about connecting. And it's all about kind of being inquisitive, being not intrusive, but asking lots of questions and kind of really understanding the individual you're speaking to and obviously the business you're selling into. So that was a simple transferable skill for me. So, sales was a kind of an easy mm-hmm. option. In my career, I started on a graduate scheme at Enterprise Rent-A-Car, and that taught me everything I needed to know from cleaning a car mm-hmm. in a skirt, <laughs> which was obviously <laughs> quite challenging, yeah. um, to selling, to doing accounts, to doing to running the actual office itself and yeah. managing a fleet of cars. So, it gave me a broad range, the graduate scheme, and it gave yeah. me an idea of where I wanted to focus. And sales was a key area. Okay. Great. So I've worked in that space now for the last, I said, thirteen years. But I think for me, what has helped me is that I'm incredibly persistent.
3: Mm-hmm. So
2: one of the things again, it's a, a key selling point or a USP for an ADHD is the persistence, of, the persistence inside you. You never want to, you never want stop. You're always seeking to hit and be yeah. the best where possible. I guess that's what's keep me kept me going. And ADHD is a fantastic in an emergency or stressful situation. You're very practical. So. I guess when it gets really heated um, and you're feeling incredibly stressed, you just go into practical mode and keep it quite methodical, right. And that's, that's how I focus and, and work. But I don't like targets. I don't think anyone does. Yeah, yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> you know? now, one of the things that I um, also mentioned was that hmm. because that you have ADHD and you are dyslexic, that people mm-hmm. assume that you lacked intelligence or you yeah. lacked ability. What type of messages were you receiving from those people? how were they determining that you you lacked intelligence?
2: Well, I think one the biggest thing for me, and this is the most memorable, is when my CEO, you know, a few years ago turned around and said to me, I've got a mate starting a beauty company. I think it'd be the perfect job for you, George. It's simple sales. Oh wow. Implying that I wasn't able to manage complex sales. And I think to be fair, Mike, I hadn't actually disclosed at that point. So but you could see the way I was operating in the workplace, it wasn't on a neurotypical level. Hmm. I wasn't able to to meet my full potential because there wasn't reasonable adjustments in place, there wasn't understanding around my areas of challenge, which I guess for me, you know, to that person's defence, but at the same time. It was clearly the fact I've got ADHD and dyslexia thought yeah. in a different way and operated in a different way was being seen as in relation to um, sorry that was a motorbike
1: game
2: <laughs> yeah, um, no in relation to my intelligence and that I could only mm. deal with simple things and it, yeah. I found I found that crippling that that led to a breakdown
1: yeah
2: um, but it led me to the neurodiversity space which is fabulous.
1: Let me just ask you a question before we get on to that, because one of the terms you, you've you mentioned mm-hmm. earlier on was the term neurotypical. Is there really mm-hmm. such a thing as neurotypical? What's your view?
2: Oh, I think everyone's on the spectrum. And no. I was talking to a friend about this the other day. Everyone is on, on a spectrum in life. And some people are on a spectrum this end, but they can able to cope because the social aspects or, you know, there's no extremes so everyone is plotted somewhere the mm. amount of my friends that have got adhd traits yeah but they are able to function they don't have the extremities okay so i think neurotypical is just it's a myth it's just a way of kind of having a generalist box off mm. to build a society in a particular way so i don't think anyone really fits into that box completely yeah. i think there's always deviation off that but i guess you've got to start somewhere right
1: yeah absolutely um, so tell me, how did you get into the neurodiversity space?
2: Well, I actually was at Lexic before. So it's actually a little bit different. So Common Sisters than mm-hmm. the last uh, 12 months mm-hmm. um, and Lexic was before. And ah. again, this is a fun- fantastic ADHD trait. I'm incredibly direct and I can be quite bullshy in some ways. And <laughs> I was at an event and I saw the, the word neurodiversity and dyslexia. And I was like, oh, that's me. I'm dyslexic. So I went and spoke to them and I just said, right, I'm the person on your event poster. If you want a salesperson. And I had a a job at the time. I said, if you want a salesperson, I'm the person for you. Mm -hmm. And they said, actually, yeah, we are looking. So I said, perfect. Because, and I actually got the job. Obviously, I went through an interview process and it was was thorough. And I was the right person for that role. But it was just the most fabulous thing to do to utilize your skills. Because sales, you know, do I really want to be a 65-year-old saleswoman? Maybe not, but if I'm a 65-year-old saleswoman and I'm selling a product which is changing people's lives, that's a very different conversation. Okay? Selling cars or, se- or, or changing lives. Mm. I'll happily change lives at 65 as well. So it gave me a new purpose in life. I guess it sent me on a, a journey. Yeah. Which, I have, which yeah,
1: which brought you to Cognosist.
2: Which has brought me to Cognosist, yes, yeah. because in relation to neurod- the neurodiversity space – what I can see is awareness grows. More and more people are coming forward and saying, oh, that's me, actually. Well, that's me. Mm. So, you know, very quickly you see the one in seven. (laughs) It's probably like more like one in four, one in five, okay? And if everyone wants a diagnostic assessment, that means the waiting time gets longer, the cost gets more expensive. And actually, do we need to all be boxed in? If society changes, labels become less important. Mm -hmm. People just... People are just people, right? So at Cognosys, we look at people's brains in relation to the the domains that they utilise on a day-to-day basis. So we look at areas of strength and challenge. So it's a screener, and we provide adjustments for people who have areas of challenge. We say, well, these are the adjustments you are required for this this brain type or this domain challenge area. And that's what we do. So we don't label. We just provide insight into people's brains, democratise brain data, Mm-hmm. right adjustments and it's ai and it's using technology and it's online it takes 30 minutes you don't you're not like a human beings so for me it seems like the next step in line mm. in regards to this where this is moving the space it's hence why i moved here
1: so so cognizists do this this screening you also provide mm-hmm. education um i think i mentioned yep. to Institutions and companies, as well as individuals, Mm -hmm. what type of education do you provide?
2: So, just to give you an idea, so we provide um, for education, apprenticeships, and universities. We provide cognitive assessments, adjustments, and tutor training. Okay, Mm -hmm. for corporate environments and corporate organisations, we provide cognitive assessments, adjustments, and training around neurodiversity, cognitive diversity. We We train managers to understand the results of the cognitive assessments, but also understand how that impacts a person in the workplace and also neurodiversities as well. But also we help organisations to build teams of neurodiversity champions. So they've got evangelists in the organisations where the managers can go to if the reasonable adjustments they have in place or similar are not functioning or working. So it's a kind of support mechanism within the business. We're bridging the gap between education uh, apprenticeships apprentices in the workplace, which is which is awesome
1: excellent and for those that go through the the screening assessment that you provide, I'm assuming that they may mm. re- receive a a report of some sort can yes. can they use that information if uh, they feel that they may be neurodivergent in some way and take that to their GP as the fact that they've actually had this screening and this is what it's actually mm-hmm. telling them
2: yeah. So that's actually, we're looking at the moment, so we're we're building partnerships because with organizations like teams of psychologists, because they can understand the domain scores um, and then they can then interpret whether it's um, dyslexia, dyspraxia, dyscalculia, so they can utilize it for a further diagnostic assessment. Mm -hmm. So it's a really good insight in relation to that person's brain. So to give you an idea, um, a normal process would be in an organization where it's a team of psychologists, they'd probably do a screener Which is a paper based screener where they'll ask a number of different questions and Mm -hmm. and they give person, that person kind of points and and kind of waiver up where they potentially have a new university. And then they do an in depth diagnostic assessment. So essentially our assessment is being utilized as that screener and it's just AI led and it's gamification. It's. Mm -hmm. The the, um, example areas of numeracy, literacy, and executive functioning are just three of the areas that we look at in regards to the nine domains. So, yes, that can be utilized and read by psychologists and understood by psychologists.
1: That's great because I, you know, particularly in corporate organizations, I I do believe that there are probably more people with a learning difference or a neurodivergent than we are actually aware of.
3: 100%. Um,
1: yeah. Now, I'm wondering even if those in- individuals are even aware themselves, because we have very few people, particularly in our company, that will come forward and self-declare that, you know, they are ADHD or, you know, autistic or whatever the case may be. I- is there any advice or recommendation you can give, one, for companies? How do they ensure mm-hmm. that they are providing a greater level of support or creating an environment that allows people to self-declare? And then what advice would you mm-hmm. give to those individuals who are aware of their neurodivergent condition to actually declare and get better support and help?
2: Yeah. Well, neurodiversity is a protected characteristic under the Equality Act. Mm-hmm. Um, so straight away, there is some protection there. I think neurodiversity is at the forefront of people's minds because we yes. know if we Support and empower neurodiverse minds, or neurodiverse, neurodivergent, or neurospicy minds. We actually drive innovation growth. What do people need? You know, I think what's happened within organisations is that people have put coping mechanisms in place. Okay, they're working longer hours. Um, there's burnout. There's mental health challenge, etc. Actually, if you're if you're open at the start and get the reasonable adjustments in place, okay, you might need assistive technologies as well. And then actually you can function in a job in a much more effective way. Because what I found from experience is that when you're so worried about aspects of your job that you're not very good at and you need reasonable adjustments for, but you haven't got them in place, Mm. you don't utilize the aspects of your brain which make you unique. Your creative side, your innovative side, bigger picture thinking, the solution side, you know, you don't because you're so, you're chronically kind of, or you're, you're, you're focusing and anxious about this one particular piece that you're failing at. So I would say, always be open, always be honest. Don't mask. Life's mm. too short to mask. You know, I've, I've, I've stopped myself now, but find ways of being professional and utilizing your skills in the most effective way, but ask for reasonable adjustments because it's a requirement. Okay. A legal yeah. requirement.
3: That's fantastic. And, but
2: it's for the, it is for the organization to decide what's reasonable though. So just remember that. Yeah. And what's the other question? You had something else.
1: It was from two sides. So the first one was mm-hmm. from the individual. What tips could yeah. they do to self-declare? Mm-hmm. But the other side was from the
2: organisation perspective.
1: Yes. yes. Um, yeah,
2: cool. No, that's, I've got some. So in relation to the, the companies, so I when I ever speak to an organization on the phone, I say to them, the first thing I've done today is Google your company name
1: mm-hmm. and
2: new diversity. If nothing comes up, why not? You know, where's the lived experience being shared by executive sponsor? You know, where's the... Um, Oh, reasonable adjustments available from uh, interview process. You know, li- really small things like that or your university policy popping up or EDI policy to show that it's at the forefront of your mind. Yeah. This is a safe space for people to be open. So I'd say that's a really clear starting point. One of the other things with organisations, when they put the job adverts out, at the bottom, if people require any reasonable adjustments for the interview process, please just let us know. We yeah. have some, some available. So they're just really basic starting points. But as we know... If you drive awareness across organisation, and one of the key factors in the area of challenge is managers working effectively with NeuroSpicy um, team members, and that, that's, that's a massive barrier there. Yeah. And actually, so if you can train your managers to know how to manage people and adapt the way they are interact, interacting with different people, you're going to get so much more out of them. It's the same with tutors in schools. Mm-hmm. You know, if you, can, if you can recommend to the tutor that they work with students in different ways and adapt them, then actually it's, it's yeah. more effective for everyone. So education and learning about different human being types is the key. So always start off with awareness training, but make sure you have a reasonable adjustments process in place. Yeah. So when the person puts their hand up and says, yes, that's me, you, you've got a journey to take that person on so they don't get upset. Yeah. So that's just starting points, Mike.
1: Great. I love the term neuro-spicy.
2: <laughs> oh, neuro-spicy. Uh, <laughs> I love it. I'm, I'm a... What it, would you say you're, you're NeuroSpicy, Mike?
1: Maybe. I don't know. and maybe. maybe I can find out one day. But uh, Maybe. Yeah, that's interesting. So. Well, uh, you also touched on um, tutors and, and schools. Yeah. And, um, and I don't believe there is enough support and help in schools. And funny enough, in my next episode, I'm going to mm-hmm. talk about neurodiversity through the eyes of a parent. Um, So that'll be interesting. But of course, I think it's easier to diagnose children more so these days if the Mm -hmm. school or the education authority are really focused on helping to identify students Mm -hmm. who are neurodivergent. But I believe that there are lots that don't. And maybe some of the things that get in the way of that is budgets and finances, you know, and how schools Mm -hmm. are run. So there are a lot of kids, unfortunately, that don't get the right level of yeah. support that's needed. And it's interesting because typically from a parent perspective, lots of parents do have the same attitude as, as your GP. in as much as mm-hmm. oh, they will grow out of it, and, and they think that it's not really an issue or anything to worry about at this point in time. So that level of education all around is... Is needed, you know, so mm-hmm. much. Um, we need to continue to drive the awareness and the education around uh, neurodiversity because I don't think enough is known about it. It's it's such a complex field. Um, I don't know if you what your thoughts are on on that.
2: Well, to remove the stigma as well, I think you've got to think about for mm-hmm. me is that if I did, you know, I, my parents are of the generation where the the par- they, you know the husband went to work, my mum stayed at home and brought the kids up. That doesn't work anymore. And mm. also, I was in a situation where my my mum and dad did have the time to work with me to get my results to a level which was going to yeah. be mean I could get into university, mean I could continue life and be successful in the workplace. They were massively supportive, but not every child has that. Yeah. So what happens to those children that get left behind? And actually. It's a false economy. If you're not adjusting the way you're teaching people and the way you're supporting and driving awareness, people are not going to reach their full potential. There'll Mm be, you know, there's a massive issue with unemployment. Yes. You know, if we could adjust the way that we're teaching people, could those people actually reach their full potential? I know for me, I could have definitely been in a very different channel in my life now if it wasn't Mm -hmm. for my parents. But that's not for everyone. And whose responsibility is it? And that's the question that goes back to it. Is it the school's responsibility? Is it the parents? Is it a combination? I yeah. don't know if I can say it at the moment. And I don't have children. I'm sure if I did, I'd probably have an ADHD child. So I'd probably learn a lot more. But it's a false economy. And actually, yeah. I, but I think reasonable adjustments, but also identifying. So if I had a cognitive assessment at school and I understood the areas of strength and challenge, I could have put adjustments in place at that point. Yeah. So don't do um, anyone below 16 at the moment, but we are mm-hmm. looking to lower our age to 14 because yeah. there are people slipping
3: through the net.
1: Now, with your yourself in particular um
3: mm-hmm.
1: you know it's almost like you have embraced your own neurodivergent you, mm-hmm. you use it as your your superpower i'm wondering how many people because you mentioned the term stigma how many people are embracing their neurodivergence and using it for their own level of creativity and and strength versus those that are masking right who are mm-hmm. hiding that and i think as you mentioned earlier on maybe cheating their way through things pretending that you know they can read or pretending that they understand numbers do you think that's a a huge challenge to overcome for a lot of people
2: i think so but i think people that's i think in life people find their own mechanisms and that Mm -hmm. is what's happened but again i don't think those people necessarily achieve what they achieve
3: yeah
2: um in relation to stigma there still is and you know, we're talking about intersectionality today as well. Yeah. And just something I experienced on the gay side the other day about, you know, my sexuality. When I was with my family, you know, my even my brother-in-law said to my niece, oh, you know what? I hope you grew up being um, straight. You know, if you could mm-hmm. just like boys, that'd be so much wow. simpler. And I was like, come on. I, and I was sat opposite him. And I was like, that's not cool. And the amount of people I know who are going through struggles at 35. So mm-hmm. talking about sexuality, there's a lot more people coming out as bisexual at 35 and onwards, mm. because they've been repressed and hiding that side of themselves when they were younger because of what their family told them. Yeah, And that's what I had with my own being gay, but also being neurodiverse as well. I had that stigma in my family because that's what people thought and that's how that generation was. But the generations coming through now, they're so much more open. They're so much more proud. People are aware because the awareness is growing. People are actually, I do have some fantastic qualities and I'm gonna learn how I can utilize them. And it's it is 21-year-olds you know, coming in nowadays are like, yeah, I'm autistic. Um, what can you provide to me? Hmm. Because they just it's not they say there's nine generations of trauma within your family and the way you're brought up. And your your family core is what really it shows acceptance through life, whether you're gay, yes. whether you're neurodiverse, it comes from your family. It really yeah. does, a validation. But that is changing, and as generations move on and the, the trauma kind of reduces and you're less stoic and people are just more themselves, I am seeing that tran- transition in relation to being proud about neurodiverse, be- being proud about neurospice, being neurospicy or <laughs> proud being gay. It yeah. is changing. But there's still a large generation of individuals where it wasn't acceptable, still isn't, mm-hmm. and they're only just finding out now, but it, it's been seen as a negative, or you know, a hyperactivity disorder. I don't see myself as disabled, I see a society as disabling me.
3: Yes.
2: And I'm as I said to you, I'm not gonna mask anymore. No way. Life's yeah. too short. No, that's life's too short.
1: That's great. So would you would you say then, um that, you know, with all of your your experience and how you've actually embraced everything that that you've now found hmm. a happy place? You know, you've found well, where you fit within society. Happier place. Yeah. Happier place.
2: Yeah. Happier, I think, in life as an ADHD individual, it's like being on a roller coaster ride. Mm. That's the only way I can describe it. I used to say it's like being in a nineties rave.
3: <laughs> That's
2: it's just like sometimes it's just so overstimulating and yeah. you just I don't know. You, you need to get have a bit of time out, a bit of you know, cigarette outside. I'm not a smoker, but right. cigarette outside to cool off for a bit. Then you're going back into the hectic lifts and mm. you come outside, and you're like, oh, a bit of absolutely bloody exhausted. Yes, my life is a lot happier. I have focus, I have much more self-awareness and understanding. You know, I'm doing therapy at the moment. And therapy is about inner child and mm-hmm. ADHD combined and how I can make that myself less destructive. So I think for me, yes, I'm happier. I'm far more content. I know who I am as an individual, but I'm still learning.
3: Yeah.
2: And for me, I think it's, I am looking potentially taking medication because in relation to emotional dysregulation, that does still kind of fluctuate and come in and out. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm not naive. Um, but I'm also starting an ADHD women's group next week, oh, wow. and which is awesome. But I'm also petrified because <laughs> creating a process myself. So, but I'm definitely far more confident in my ability, and mm-hmm. I don't my imposter syndrome is reduced massively.
1: Right, um, that's great.
2: Which is amazing. Yeah, I, I'm think give me another five years, and I'll be even even happier.
1: Fantastic. Okay. I was actually going to ask the question. You yeah. know what? What is next for you? Where do you where do you see yourself? I mean, you're you're currently at Cognizus. Sounds mm-hmm. like a great company providing you know fantastic awareness and education and helping people to embrace uh, neurodiversity. But what does that mean for you? What's the next steps for you personally?
2: Yeah. So I have a five year vision. So um, I'm working with a, a coach at the moment, uh, a life coach, which is fab. And my next five years, I, in the next five years, I want to do, be doing ADHD retreats. So you'll see Leanne Marskell um, has just started the first ADHD retreat, which is fantastic. It's mm-hmm. sold out. It's shown me there's a market there for it. Um, but I want to do retreats which are slightly different, a wow. little bit kind of more ecstatic dance, uh, more around kind of, I shouldn't say too much, um gong bars, etc., things that have changed my life. Yeah, I want to provide to other people. I think that's kind of my five-year desire. But obviously, you know, I'll continue to work in this space yeah. and penetrate the B two B market and continue changing. There are so many companies that aren't doing enough at the moment. Mm. So there's so much for me to go at in the next five years. But you know, hopefully on the side, i be able to do the retreats as well. So in life, I think I don't know about you, Mike, but there's a lot of people at 37 that come to a turning point and like, what is the point of life? What is my purpose? Mm-hmm. And I I found myself and many of my other friends going for that that situation at the moment. ADHD and neurodiversity has been one of my f- main focuses, which is fabulous. Yeah. But it's like, what is the next purpose and what's the next thing I can do to build on that? And that's, I'm hoping more specifically focusing on women with ADHD can help help with that kind of purpose in life. So that's that's that, my plan.
1: That's brilliant. That is absolutely... Uh, yeah. fantastic and you know obviously we're, we're coming up to the end of the show I could talk to you for much much longer but I really want to take the opportunity to thank you first for sharing your own personal experiences for being very open mm-hmm. and candid but I think the work that you're doing that will help other people and even you know what you've shared on on this particular show I'm sure many people will resonate uh, mm-hmm. with it and I just wish you every success in the future with everything that you're doing and with your five-year plan I would love to see that (laughs) come to fruition um the retreats yeah so good luck with everything and Mm -hmm. once again thank you for being a guest on the show
2: yeah that's great thanks Mike thanks you too
1: great you take care bye for now take
3: care
0: Thank you for joining us on this episode of diversity matters we hope that through our discussions we have brought a deeper understanding of what equity diversity and inclusion truly means for each of us remember that the journey to a truly inclusive and equitable world is ongoing Let's continue to champion these values in our lives and strive for positive change together. If you enjoyed this episode, please make sure to like and subscribe the show on your favorite podcast channel. And we look forward to joining us on the next episode. And remember, inclusion, equity and diversity matters.